Is there a storm blowing in your life right now? And by storm, what I mean by that is, is there a trial? Is there a difficulty? Is there a painful experience that you're in right now? Is there something that maybe started years ago, maybe even dozens of years ago if you're older, that you've never really been able to work through, or maybe a storm that started last week or even this morning. But are you in a storm or is a storm of life in you right now? Now, I want you to think like that because we're going to hear about this storm. We looked at it last week when we went to Psalm 107, but we're really going to unpack this storm and why this storm came to that ship. You know, many years ago, there was a boy that was born into a Christian family, and for the first six years of his life, he was loved. He was taught the truths of the gospel, but both of his parents died. And this is a true story. And he was sent to live with his relatives, and his relatives abused him, and they ridiculed him for his interest in Christ. And he eventually escaped that family, those relatives, and he ran and he joined the Navy. And when he went to the Navy, his life went downhill rapidly. He became a brawler, a fighter, eventually a, deser a deserter, and fled to one of the worst areas of Africa, and he went there in his own words, quote unquote, to sin his fill. He fell in with a Portuguese slave trader where his life reached its lowest point. At times, he was made to eat off the floor on his hands and knees, and he escaped that trader only, that, that slave trader, only to get attached to yet another, and this time it's the first mate of his ship. Well, he stole the ship's whiskey one time. He got so drunk that he fell overboard the ship. He would have drowned if an officer had not harpooned his thigh and pulled him back onto the ship. It created such a wound that years later he could still put his hand, his fists, into that opening. And later he came face to face with death as a storm began to fill the ship's hold with water, and for days he helped work the pumps. But he finally resigned himself that he was going to sink with the ship and drown. And he began to cry out to God, he began to shout out verses of the Bible that he had long thought forgotten from his childhood. And as he remembered those verses, he was miraculously brought to the throne of mercy, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he left the business of slavery. He began to preach the gospel. He began to write songs about the grace of God. And you know this man because you've sung his, his song, his most famous one, John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, which goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton came to faith in the midst of a storm. So are you in a storm of life? Listen, here's what I've been telling you, and I've been telling you this for over a year and a half, because it's preparation. You're either in a storm of life now, or you've recently left one, or there's one coming towards you. They are part of life, and they are certainly part of Christian maturity. 
And they can be terrifying, but they always serve God's purposes. Now, did you hear what I just said? Now, if you didn't really listen to the John Newton story, that's fine, but you got to really key in on this statement. Storms in life always, notice what I didn't say, sometimes, usually, rarely, or often, they always serve God's purposes. And I want you to hold that in your mind as I catch you up to what we've seen so far in the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a prophet. Now, listen, he's not a prophet. He is the prophet, according to 2 Kings, meaning he's famous. He correctly called, foretold a prophecy that came true, and it came true to Israel's glory. They were able to regain the land that they had under David, defeating the enemies who had stolen it from them. And it made Jonah basically a national hero. He was the prophet. And when you have success in your life, and when you've got fame, and you've got comfort, what can settle in your heart is this idea or this notion that you actually can choose which assignments from God to take. And God gave him an assignment. He said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. They were Assyrian people, and Jonah did not want to go. You get to chapter 4, verse 2, you find out why he didn't want to go. He hated the Assyrians. He knew the Assyrians would one day conquer Israel. He didn't want them to be saved. He had no mercy for the Assyrian people, and so he refused the assignment. And instead of going east to Nineveh, he went west on a ship to Tarshish. And this is where our story picks up. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So here's point number one. It's very simple, and it's, it's extremely obvious. Now watch, listen to me. It's so obvious that we often don't get it. We often miss it. Who sent the storm? God. Let's read it again, just in case you're not quite with me. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. What makes waves? Well, they're kind of linked in a little bit to our lunar cycle, the moon. But mainly what makes waves is wind. God hurls a great wind upon the sea, and it kicks up a mighty tempest. That's a cyclone. The Mediterranean Sea doesn't really get hurricanes. They get cyclones. And so this is a mighty cyclone, not a regular cyclone, not a mild one. This is a mighty tempest on the sea. But God made it happen. He threw this storm like a major league fastball. It says he hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if this is interesting to you. It is to me. Mediterranean Sea, it's an inland sea. It's 969,000 plus square miles big. That means it's 2,500 miles from the east coast to the west coast. And when you get to the west coast, you're in Spain. This is the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 17,000 feet deep at its deepest point. It's pretty big. It's a lot of water. And he hurls that wind, that great wind, not a regular wind, a great wind that produces not a regular cyclone, a mighty cyclone on the sea. Now, you know what Christians do? And I get to hear this a lot. Christians try to protect God. 
You ever heard a Christian try to protect God? You know, kind of trying to excuse something bad that's happened in somebody's life, saying, you know what, I'm sure God really didn't want that to happen. Well, if God didn't want something to happen, he is sovereign. So we try to protect God. We try to get God out from responsibility when hard times come. But the truth is, and it's what we see here, sometimes, now listen, sometimes God is the one who's sending that storm into our lives. Not always. We see Job, the book of Job, we see Satan bringing what's called a whirlwind because it struck all four corners of the house, collapsing it on all of his children, killing them. And that came from Satan. He's got power. But Satan was only allowed to do that because God let out the leash a little bit and said, Satan, you can touch Job's possessions and family. You can't touch Job. So God is responsible whether it's directly from him and he's hurling the storm or he's allowing it. He's sovereign. And we try to protect God. We kind of want to guard his reputation. But listen, this is God. He disciplines the children that he loves and he loves all of his children. Listen, when he disciplines you, he's loving you. Now you're a parent or you have parents. If you were never disciplined as a child well that would probably have a a large effect in how you've lived your life now if you're over disciplined disciplined in anger and wrath that can certainly have negative detrimental effects as well but a parent that disciplines their children or his or her children is a parent that really honestly loves his child or her child. A parent that will not discipline is a parent that really is withholding love. Discipline from God has an equal sign. It is equal to his love. It is his love in expression. He disciplines. Sometimes he brings and sometimes he allows, sometimes he hurls the storms into our life. Now listen to this. Storms, they create turbulence. You know what they do? They wrestle control from us. Man, we don't like that. I don't like that. And they begin a movement deep within us. And these storms, they can blow briefly and they can quickly pass. Or sometimes they can last a really long time and we wonder if we're ever going to make it through. But God has a purpose in that storm. And he's going to show you what that purpose is for Jonah. And he's going to show you what it is for the sailors. But I have a question. I'm going to unpack this more towards the end. Do you see, do you see in that storm God bidding you to come to him or God bidding you to go and be obedient? Those are the two purposes we're going to see in this. Let's look at the first. God sent the storm to save the sailors. Now you've heard it said there's no atheist in a foxhole. Fear moves us to worship. And storms, they tend to do two things in our lives. Now, you ready? Here they are. They tend to do two things. I'm going to give you one now. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm going to give you the second one. Here's the first one. They move us to God for help. They move us to God for help. I had a phone call not even two weeks ago from a lady that's never come to our church. 
She's calling churches all over Easton, all over the East End of the Lehigh Valley, trying to get hold of a pastor. I guess apparently we're that hard to get a hold of. She finally calls me. She leaves a message. I call her back within minutes, and I introduce myself. She introduces herself. She has a, a, a younger lady that is like a daughter to her. It's not her daughter. She's like a daughter to her. She's known her for many, many years, and this younger lady has a little girl. And this lady who is like a daughter to her was in the hospital, and they don't know if she's going to survive. And she calls me, and she says to me, Pastor, why does God allow these things to happen to good people? Now, if I had a... I'm not going to use nickel because that's like 1800s. If I had a dollar for every time somebody's asked me that, I don't even know what I would do with it. So much money, I can't even tell you what I would do with it. I get asked that question a lot. Why does God allow these things to happen to good people? And that's in theological terms called a theodicy. I'm not even going to answer that for you this evening. If you would like to know the answer to that, then whether you're here now or tomorrow morning listening to this or on the web, you can certainly call me and I'll work you through that. It is a long, long answer, very complicated. But listen, here's what was happening in this woman's life. Some calamity was coming in. Her daughter, the girl that is like a daughter to her, they didn't know if she was going to live. It began to move her vertically and she's reaching out to a pastor and we had a time of of prayer that's what storms can tend to do but think about the ancient world for a moment the ancient world was what's called polytheistic poly means many polygon has many sides Israel was a monotheistic nation they had one God hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one so Israel is monotheistic Pagan religion in the ancient world is polytheistic. I could probably explain it like this. There's 32 teams in the NFL. Picture 32 people, each with a jersey representing their team. So all 32 teams are represented. That's a polytheistic sports culture. Now picture 32 people and all of them wearing a Dallas Cowboys jersey. Because that's God's team. That's monotheistic. So now that I've emblazoned this in your mind, you understand the difference between poly and mono. And so these polytheistic sailors, now look at, look at what it is. Now you know, you'll know what they are, poly or mono, verse 5. Then the, mar the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. That's polytheistic. They each had their own God. They're each crying out, calling out, praying. So the sailors on this ship, they each have their own God. They're now worshiping. The storm has moved fear into their hearts. Now watch. And fear put them into motion, and they put themselves into motion toward their God. Yet God's intention, and this is very important, God's intention isn't to send these sailors running into the arms of a false God. That's not what God's doing here. You ready? And this is what he does now as well. This is what he might be doing in some of your lives. It's his t intention to prove any other God beside him to be false and powerless. 
This is exactly what's going to happen. Despite their prayers, despite their appeals to their gods, their gods weren't answering. Look at verse 13. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. So listen, they're crying out to their gods. They all got their own gods. Each have their gods. Nobody's answering. This is what God is doing. He's bringing a storm into their lives. It's moving them in fear to their god, their idol, their refuge. But their gods weren't answering. Answering. Their gods were ineffective. They were powerless. They're false. So they do what every worshiper of a, worshiper of a false god has to do. They try to save themselves. Listen, if your god's not going to save you, then it's death or find a way to save yourselves. Verse 5. So they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This is works-based salvation. Now, isn't it interesting that only in Christianity, and I hope you hear this, because you're not going to find an exception to this. It's only in Christianity that salvation depends entirely on God. We are alone in this. For some of us, since the 1990s, it became kind of an important thing to say, oh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Listen, Christianity is a religion built on a relationship with God. And it's Christianity alone that, ha that teaches that salvation depends entirely on God. Every other religion, every single one of them, is built on a system of works. Let me give you three examples, and you can see them up on the screen. Let's take Hinduism. To be free from the law of karma, then one has to be lovingly devoted to any one of the Hindu gods or goddesses. By the way, you've got 330 million of them to choose from. And you grow in knowledge through meditation, and you be dedicated to various rites and ceremonies. You can't get free of karma, the law that what comes around will go around. You will earn what you, you will reap what you earn. You can't get free of that. Until you earn it through various rites, meditation, and ceremonies. you got to work your way into the upper echelon of Hinduism. Let's take Buddhism. You have countless rebirths. They're all called reincarnations. And to end them, like the Buddha did. Buddha's not their god. Buddha is the one who ended reincarnation. They're all trying to be like Buddha. Well, then one has to end all the cravings, and they've got to purify your heart by blowing out the flame of desire, and you do this through meditation and self-discipline. It's not about God dying for you. It's about you dying to you and earning your own salvation through countless reincarnations. Let's take Islam. One must worship the god Allah. They are monotheistic, by the way. By following five religious duties, and here they are. You've got to repeat a creed about Allah and his prophet Muhammad. It's the greatest prophet of Allah. You've got to recite certain prayers in Arabic five times a day. Number three, you've got to give to the needy. And then you've got one month a year, you've got to fast from food, drink, sex, and smoking from sunrise to sunset. And then you've got to take a pilgrimage in your lifetime at least once to worship at a shrine in Mecca, their holiest place. And if you're faithful to these duties, then at death you will enter paradise, if not hell. You got to work your way through it. See, it's only, and I could go on and on to the Baha'i faith, 
to new age faith, on and on. Only in Christianity does one's salvation depend entirely on what God has done, not what we have done. Now look at verse 16 in our text. Look at the salvation that this storm brings. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, meaning they worshipped. It doesn't mean they're cowering from his sight. That word is a synonym for worship. They feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, now you got to get this. Dig in a little bit. Chew a little bit. Look at the order of that. Everybody look at verse 16. It's critical that you see this order. They feared God. They worshiped God. They put their faith in God. Then they offered a sacrifice. Then they made vows. See, only Christianity could put it in that order. They were saved, they worshiped, they committed their lives to God. That's exactly what that means. Pagan religion goes like this. You offer a sacrifice, you commit your life to the God, and then you hope to be saved. See, storms can move unbelievers to the God who can save them because it proves their God's false. Do you see the value of a storm? What did it do for Jonah? Let's go to point number three. God sent this storm to expose his prophet. See, not only do storms move us to God for salvation, they also expose what is hidden in the hearts of his people. You know, Hurricane Sandy, you guys remember that storm? For most of us, power went out for a while. Hurricane Sandy washed up onto the shore 57 love letters written during World War II from Dorothy Fallon to a man named Lynn Farham. Very interesting. That's what storms do. Storms wash up all sorts of debris that has been lying hidden on the bottom of the ocean. They do this on Great Lakes up north. All of a sudden, a storm will come through Lake Superior or Lake Erie, and all of a sudden, a shipwreck that's been hidden for, for years and years is all of a sudden invisible. This is what happens. Storms in life do the same thing. As our hearts are now laid open, and what was inside is now made visible. Now, the favorite way that I can explain this is like this. In fact, I'll tell you a prank that was done on me when I was in college. This was mean, nasty, sick, but hilarious. It was a tube of toothpaste. And what my roommate had done to me was take, he took a whole box of raisins, and he put one at a time with a toothpick down into that tube, all of them down in there. And I'm brushing my teeth at night, and all of a sudden out plops this part of toothpaste that looked disturbingly like a raisin or a bug, as I thought it was. It was hilarious. I'd encourage all of you to do it to your spouse, see what happens, come see me for marriage counseling. But here's what happens. You take a tube of toothpaste, and you can't see, unless it's a clear container, and almost none of them are, but you can't see what's inside that tube. 
what, when you see what's inside that tube is when you take your hand and you enfold that tube and you apply pressure. And when you apply that pressure, out from the tube comes pouring what was inside. Listen, this is what storms do. This is what trials do. This is what heat and pressure and difficulties in life do. It is the hand of God squeezing our hearts so that what was inside them that we could not see comes out. Why can't you see? them well jeremiah 17 says your hearts are deceitful my heart's deceitful it's wicked you know what that word deceitful means it was a it was a word in hebrew used for two occupations the first one is for hunting you're tracking a deer and all of a sudden it gets into a muddy terrain and a lot of other deer are crisscrossing it and you can't follow your tracks in the midst of all the other tracks it means many tracked that's what that word means you get you get looking in your heart and you start going down deep proverbs 20 says it gets darker the deeper you go there's not a lot of light and all of a sudden you miss what's in your heart you can't track it you can't follow it you can't see it anymore the other occupation and the word deceitful was a road builder term and what that means is this when they would come to a hill you can't build a road for wagons straight up a hill there's no way the horses can pull it you got to create switchbacks we do it today as well that word deceitful is the word for switchback you can't see what's coming around the corner that's what the heart is you look down into it you can't see it it's a switchback it's dark it's many tracked it's deceitful so trials and storms are god's grace to squeeze our hearts so that all of a sudden the disbelief the frustration the anger at god or the confidence in God, the, the appeal to his mercy, all of that pulls out, pours out of your life. And now you know what was in your heart all along. And Jesus said, the words you speak come from the, what's stored up in your heart. Storms wash up debris. Now listen to this from Proverbs 20. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts this is talking about discipline are you like me did your father perhaps spank you as a child he got the belt out when i was a really young child one time i knew i was going to get spanked my mom said it wait till your father gets home that's code for you are toast and so i went into my room and i put on every single pair of underwear that i could find I had a very largely distended rear end. My father saw it, made me take every one of them off, and then applied the belt. But by that time, I think he was laughing so hard, it really didn't hurt anymore. But listen, this is a disciplined verse. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. That's what storms do. Listen, when a storm comes in your life, don't detest it. Don't revile it. Don't blame God saying, God, you don't love me. This storm is God's grace. It's working to show you what's in your heart. So watch what comes out of your life. If it's faith, give praise to God. If it's unbelief, then appeal to God for help and for his grace. So we've got on the deck of this ship unbelieving sailors running to their mute gods. Now watch this. Down below in the innermost part of the ship is Jonah asleep. That point alone, Christian friend, should be convicting to us. 
Because we got people all around us running to their false gods, but they, which can never help them. But so many of us are asleep. We're doing and saying nothing to help them. Now listen, when's the last time that you shared the good news of Christ, what he has done in your life to an unbelieving co-worker, friend, neighbor, family member? When's the last time you've done that? I mean, I'm pretty sure that like me, you cannot possibly say, with sincerity, that you don't have unbelievers in your life. They're everywhere. And if we're down sleeping in the hold and we're not saying anything, listen, the ship is being threatened to break up. It's cracking. The sails are ripping. They're going to go down. The one, which, the one person who can deliver them or who can appeal to the one who can deliver them is down in the hold asleep. Do you know that every year Jews on their holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, read the book of Jonah? Do you know that? Every single year they read the book of Jonah. And they do it for two reasons. Number one, they want to be reminded that no one, no one can escape the arm of God. When God calls you to obey, he will pursue you to obey. The other reason is this, however. No one, not even the wicked Assyrians, are beyond God's mercy. And they read the book of Jonah. You know how they end, and this is the point of me telling you this, you know how they end in most, or I guess I would say the majority of Jewish families? They end with these three words. You ready? We are Jonah. The book of Jonah is perhaps the most relatable book in the entire Old Testament. He is the most relatable prophet in the entire Old Testament. He's the Peter of the Old Testament. We can relate with Jonah because a lot of us, well, we don't like what God asks us to do. We don't always like his assignments. Even though we know his ways are higher than our ways, he really does ask us to do some things that make us very highly uncomfortable, and we really like the option of maybe saying no to him. But Jonah had gone down, verse 5, into the inner part of the ship and laying down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. In other words, he's saying, Jonah, come on, man. Our gods aren't helping us. Get up and try yours. That's really what he's saying. So he hauls Jonah up to the deck. Now watch, read, read along. Look at your text. He gets Jonah up on the deck, and Jonah does nothing. He doesn't even cry out to God. He doesn't pray. He doesn't call out to Yahweh the Lord. He will not even talk to God. Now watch, and this is going to bring in some of us. A Christian with secret sin will find it impossible to have intimate fellowship with God. Now are you hearing me? If you have sin that you have hidden in your heart, if you are bitter towards God, if you are full of resentment to Him, if you are in rebellion and refusing to do what He has called you to do, listen, you will not find it possible to pray in intimacy with God. You know why? I could tell you this one because I've certainly experienced this. 
You go to prayer and it's like an echo chamber. You can't even hear your own prayers. You hear God's grace and mercy saying, when will you repent? When will you obey? When will you love me? You can't even get words out to him. So Jonah's up on this deck. He can't pray. He does not pray. And trying to pray when you're holding on to rebellion or sin, it's just impossible. Yet the storm worsens, so the sailors conclude that somebody has angered some god, and so they cast lots. Now I've got to imagine Jonah's pretty nervous at this point. He knows the Bible. Proverbs was written before Jonah chronologically. He knows that the lot is cast into the lot or into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, lots were sticks of stones or sticks rather in various lengths. You remember the short straw? Remember how you pick teams sometimes? You got all maybe six straws of the same length, and then you got one that's shorter. And the one who draws the short straw, they're the one that's the one that's got to go do it. Listen, that's, those are how lots worked. They had flat rocks that were painted one color on one side, another color on the other side, and they actually flipped them. They cast them into their lot, into their lap. It's just like flipping a coin, heads or tails. There's not really a lot different. The only other way that I know that they cast lots were pieces of bone, and that was almost divination. It was more often the short straw or the rock, painted rocks. But God is utterly sovereign, even over sticks, stones, and pieces of bones, and they implicate Jonah. You'll want to remember this, because you hear this all the time. By the way, if I were you, Christian brother and sister, banish the word luck. There is no such thing. However, keep the word coincidence, but define it like this. A coincidence is a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. A coincidence is a miracle... That God, by which God chooses to remain anonymous. And so the questions begin coming. The lots are cast. They implicate Jonah. In verse 8, they start asking him questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah begins answering them. Pretty soon, you're going to read in just a couple verses, for they knew that he was running from the presence of the Lord. This is all because he's answering them with these questions. See, God's, this is huge. This might be one of the most important things I'm going to tell you. You ready? Let's get your mind ready to receive this. God's relentless grace was not punishing Jonah. Even though the the lot was cast and it implicated Jonah, God's not punishing him. He's exposing him so that he can lead him back to himself. You see the difference? Spurgeon once said that God never lets his children sin successfully. A few weeks ago, I don't know if you're, uh, I know you're familiar with this, I'm sure if you're reading the news, hackers released millions of users' account information from the online adultery site Ashley Madison. Remember hearing about that? One of the men who filled out a very old uh, email 
apparently never got onto the site, never received a match, but put an email in. One of them was a well-known Christian leader who, when this information was released, when they released the list of names, he came out and confessed that he had had, that he had been on that site. And I want you to read what he wrote. First, I felt the grace of fear. You ever put fear two words after grace? First, I felt the grace of fear. Second, I felt the grace of shame. The grace of God's judgment bore its fruit, and by his grace I repented of my sin. By his grace I have also received his forgiveness, the outworking of his love. Prophetic providence, casting the lots, had done its good office. Jesus died for this sin, but there are still earthly consequences. He resigned from his pastorate, and he resigned from his leadership position in a magazine. The moment that God exposed Jonah, are you listening? The very moment that God exposed Jonah was the beginning of hope for this prophet and for the sailors. And we're going to get to our final point, number four. God sent this storm to reveal the gospel story. There is in this story of Jonah hints of a greater story to come. Now, I, I need to explain that to you briefly. You ready? Look at me for just a moment. This is called, in Bible study language, a type. A type means that this represents something greater. So the temple and the tabernacle were a type of Christ, or a type of eternal abode of God in heaven. The bread, manna, was a type of the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. We celebrate that every communion. So there are types. In the story of Jonah, it hints of a greater story to come. And the greater story to come is going to center on another person who was sent by God to preach good news, and his name is Jesus. The entire book of Jonah points forward and upward to Jesus. It's an amazing story. You've got Jonah and you've got Jesus, both asleep on a boat in a storm. You've got the great fish and you've got the tomb, both places where Jonah and Jesus laid for three days and three nights as the sacrifice of Jonah was necessary to save the sailors from the storm. And the sacrifice of Jesus is necessary to save humanity from the storm of God's wrath. It's a type. There's a lot of similarities. There's more than I just mentioned. But there's also contrasts. And Jesus confessed, I know it is because of me that this great, or Jonah rather, confessed, I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's his own sins. Jesus never committed a sin. Jonah was thrown into the sea. Jesus willingly went to the cross. Jonah will not die in that sea. Jesus died on that cross. But Jesus himself invites the comparison. Listen to Matthew 12, verse 41. Something greater than Jonah is here. Earlier in Matthew 12, he said of the temple, something greater than the temple is here. Right after verse 41, he said something greater than Solomon is here. He's pointing to himself. The temple, Solomon, Jonah, all types, all pointing something beyond and above and greater than themselves. So you get to verse 11. Jonah 1. And I invite you to look at that with me. Jonah confessed. Confessed his sin, 
And the sailors asked, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And his answer, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. Now that's really interesting. One must die for the many to live. Should sound familiar. This is the gospel. And suddenly the death of Jesus snaps into focus. But deep, listen, deeply in the hearts of people is this humanistic effort to save themselves. Look at what the text says in verse 13. Jonah said, throw me in the sea. The sea will quiet down. Look what they do. They rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. Do you know what that means? In today's salvation language, you present the gospel of good news. You present that the Father sent the Son to die on the cross, be buried and resurrected, to save people from their sins, to restore this creation to its glory that God had intended. You, pre- you, you present the salvation message to them, and they're going to oftentimes say, no, I don't want to be saved that way. I don't even believe you could be saved through the death of a person. I'm going to work my way to salvation. I'm going to be a nicer person. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to go to church more. You can row all you want. You're not going to make it back to land. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Friends, you cannot save yourself from the storm of God's wrath against sin. Rebelliousness and sin, it provokes the wrath of God. And let me tell you the chief reason why. Now this is, I think, maybe the second most important thing I'm going to tell you. I used to be a counselor in a psychiatric center. I did that for five years. That was my original career. I worked with adolescents, teens, and I worked with children, and I was, of course, privy to their family history. Nothing, now listen, nothing would make me more furious than to see the abuse that a parent would inflict on their child and the damage so extensive that would be created. Nothing. I would, if I was in a room, and thankfully I never was, But if I was in a room with their parent, I think I would have tried to throttle them. It was just rage would come out of me. So angry. Now multiply that exponentially. You begin to understand and appreciate God's attitude to sin. Why? Now listen, this is it. All that was to tell you this. He created you, friends, to be happy in communion with him. That's why he made us. And every single person, including me, we've rebelled against him. And when we've rebelled against him, it has stripped us of the communion with God and stripped us and emptied us of our joy you cannot be in sin and be a deeply happy person it's impossible and the entire bible is about god's rescue plan to bring people back into relationship with him by forgiving sin and restoring what was to be this is why god gets so angry at sin it robs his intent 
It rises within the heart of God to be compassionate and merciful, to be with people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus said, just days before his crucifixion, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. God hates the rebellion in the hearts of people. He loathes the hurt and the pain that that rebellion causes. So the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, planned before the world was created that Jesus would be cast into the sea of divine wrath, one death, so that many could live. So if you thought Christianity was just a religion of rules and regulations, then you have yet to meet the God who gave his life to save the ones he created. Now watch this as I almost finish. I'm going to be done in just a minute. The sailors didn't want to anger the Lord more by killing his prophet. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. Don't you remember the Jewish riot before Pilate? where they called out in one voice and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. What a contrast. Finally, the sailors pick Jonah up and they throw him. Look at the word, they hurled him. God hurled the great wind, they hurled Jonah into the sea. And the sea, verse 15, ceased from its raging. So let me close by bringing you back to the storm and the storms in life. You ready? They either are going to move you to come or to go. You may be like one of those sailors. Now listen, you might be like one of those sailors and you've got your own God and they're not answering and this storm is coming against you and you can't seem to figure out a way to get it in control. And God is saying to you, come to him for salvation. And that storm in your life is getting you moving towards him. That's the design of the storm in the unbeliever. Or you may be a believer and you might be asleep in the hold and you might be running from God in disobedience and you may not want to do what God has told you to do. Well, here comes a storm. You ready? Here comes a storm and it is meant to expose you from hiding and get you to go and get back to the mission that God gave you even sometimes years ago. It's the purpose of the storm in the believer. So which one is it for you? You are either in a storm of life or you are coming out of one or you are heading back into one. It is part of life. And is it moving you to come to God or go and get on mission?